0: Well, it's good to see each one of you this morning. My name is Bill Gorman, and I'm the campus pastor here at the Brookside campus, and it's great to be with you all. Before we uh, begin to look at this uh, passage that Mindy's read for us, I'd love to just take a moment and ask for God's help as we look into this text, ask that he would speak uh, to us through his word this morning. Uh, Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you have given us the gift of your word. Um, We're thankful that as a congregation, we get to read it together, to enjoy this book together, Um, but it's so much more than a book. It truly is your word, your words of life to us, and so we ask that this morning, as we look at this particular text, that you would illumine by the power of your Holy Spirit this passage, um, that it might come to life in our life um, this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, sometimes it's the big things in life that cause us to struggle with doubt and unbelief, things like money or health or, or family. Um, but sometimes it's a dog. And, uh, and in my case, I think I got a picture of this dog here. Um, Rachel and I were dog owners for about uh, four months, uh, about this time last year, a short period of time. And uh, this caused me to really wrestle uh, with some unbelief, because through an angry email that I got from our landlord, I found out we weren't actually allowed to have a dog in our unit where we lived. We lived in a loft downtown, and the building that we lived in uh, allowed dogs, but the particular landlord that we rented our unit from did not allow dogs. And I had forgotten this. It was an honest mistake. We got this dog kind of on a whim, and I got this kind of this furious email from one of saying, you've got to get this dog out of there. Right now you're not allowed to have this. I'm really upset that the situation is there and you know to say we had actually already decided that we needed to get rid of cute little Caspian because um, one he shed a ton to the point that Rachel was having respiratory problems and two he was constantly trying to kill our cats and you know they were there first and it was like well you know we gotta we can't, you can't let him kill the cats. But the email really pushed me over the edge, and I was in this kind of moment of desperation. Actually, my parents-in-law are here today. They were—I didn't know they were going to be here this morning—but they helped save us in this moment. They let us take the dog out to their house. But on this night, before we had even made the decision to take the dog out to their house, the landlord said, "It's got to be out tonight." And I was just despairing. I didn't know where we were going to take this dog, what we were going to do. And I actually ended up laying on the floor in our hallway, face down, looking at all these scratches that I thought were from Caspian, saying, "Rachel, we're never going to get our security deposit back." This you know, and then I thought, you know, what if he, what if he sues us, you know, what if he tries to get more money out of us, and I was like, we're trying to save her a down payment on our house, we're not going to, we're never going to be able to buy a house now because of this dog, and I was just, it was not a pretty moment um, that night. Well, in a a matter of a week, really, the whole thing was resolved, Caspian got a great home with someone who needed a companion, and, you know, actually, three months later, when we moved out, moved into our new house, I opened up... uh, the mail one day, and believe it or not, the, the entire $1,000 security deposit was given back to us. I will never know how that happened. Well, God's grace that, that somehow our landlord was, gave us back our entire security deposit. I have no idea. Um, but maybe it's not some trial in your life uh, that causes you to question, um, to disbelieve, but maybe it's just something that God is saying about uh, your marriage or about the way that you use your money or the way you interact in relationships or your sex life. Maybe it's one of those things. Or maybe you're here this morning and you wouldn't even really consider yourself a believer in much of anything. Uh, you wouldn't think of yourself as a person of faith at all or, or you wouldn't call yourself a, Christ, a cr- Christian. But ask yourself this question do you even want to believe? You see, often our problem isn't that we don't believe God, it's that we don't even want to believe him. It's that we don't even really want to believe that what he says is true or that he actually exists. The problem is that we, not that we just don't, but that we don't want to. And when we realize that, we're in that place, we're in trouble Because that's the most dangerous place we can be in, God. It's the most dangerous attitude we can have toward him. One of not even wanting to believe. So ask yourself, where is disbelief most likely to attack my soul? And maybe write this down. Maybe write this question down. I want you to have this in mind this morning. Do I want to believe? Do I want to believe? Well, for the Israelites 3,500 years ago, the answer Was No, they did not want to believe Uh, they refused to trust God and they wanted to go back to Egypt. They wanted to go back to this place of slavery. They would rather go back to enslavement. They would rather die than listen to God and their story teaches us several things about what disbelief is and how it works in our lives. And the story is found in the book of Numbers, chapters 13 and 14, which Mindy read some of that story for us already. And if you're following the whole story plan and you're reading, you're going to read these two chapters on Monday and Tuesday. And if you're following the whole Bible plan, you're actually reading them today. And the book of Numbers continues the story of Israel from Exodus, then Leviticus, now into Numbers. It really is telling the story of how God is fulfilling the promise that he made to Abraham back in Genesis. We looked at that a number of weeks ago, that God has made this promise to bring this nation into a land. And now they're on the foot the doorstep. They're right on the edge of the promised land. And the English name Numbers, the title of this book, refers to, there's two censuses in the book. One at the beginning and one at the end where the people are counted. But the Hebrew title of this book is actually In the Wilderness. And gives a great picture of what happens in the book as these people wander through the wilderness. As a result of their rejection of God's promise. So Numbers 13 opens with these words. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, send men in to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. And as we pick up the story here, God's people are literally on the edge of the promised land. When they left Egypt, they crossed the Red Sea near Meribah. And we've got some maps here, I think, of these. When they crossed the Red Sea, um, they grumbled and then God gave them manna. And he gave them rest also in the wilderness of Zin. And then they received the Ten Commandments uh, at Mount Sinai, and now they've journeyed from Mount Sinai up to Kadesh Barnea. And as you can see, they're now right on the cusp of entering God's land. This whole land is what God has promised to them. And the land was incredible. It was filled with pomegranates and figs and grapes so big, it says that they were cut down. They had to carry them on a branch between two people. In fact, that, that picture of two men carrying uh, grapes in, on a branch in between them is still a symbol today. And if you go to modern day Israel, this is still a prominent symbol. You see it around as a symbol of the prosperity, the richness of this land. It's a symbol of how valuable the land really is. So as these spies go in they're thinking wow this is what God has given us this is an incredible gift but when the spies return you see in verse 25 the report is not exactly what you'd expect the spies come to Moses and Aaron the leaders of Israel and to the whole nation and they tell them how incredible the land is but then there's a but a however and you see this in verse 28 However, the people who dwell in the land, they say, are strong, and the cities are fortified and large, and it's true. Um, Archaeologists have excavated some of the cities in this area, and I think we have uh, some pictures of that as well. You see some, this is the city of Hazor, and the city of Hazor, which is one of the cities in this part of the land, had walls that were 24 feet thick. And now the Israelites, they have been, it's right that they would be afraid of cities like this. If you think about it, for the last 400 years, they have been slaves in Egypt making bricks. They're not warriors. Uh, They know how to make bricks and they know how to take care of sheep and goats and cows. Uh, They don't know anything about defeating cities with walls that are 24 feet thick. This is not a warrior people. This is a people that has been in Egypt making bricks. That's all they know how to do. So you get that they're afraid when they see cities like this. But how will they respond to this fear? It's been about a year and a half now since they left Egypt, since God first started raining down plagues on the Egyptians. It's been about 17 months since they crossed the Red Sea, where God single handedly, without them lifting a finger, defeated the entire Egyptian army that was pursuing them, the most powerful army on the face of the earth. God, like that, defeated. But now, 17 months later, when they see these walls, they're beginning to wonder, beginning to doubt, beginning to disbelieve. They're not so sure. Will they believe that God is truly for them? Will they even want to believe that God is for them? You see, this moment in Israel's history is a great anti-climax. As they come to the edge of the land, they're so close. This is what they've been waiting for. What Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, generation after generation, they've been waiting for this day to come. When they would enter this land, and then they're not so sure. It it reminds me a lot of the moment in the Lord of the Rings at the very end, in the return of the king, when Frodo has the ring, and he goes into Mount Doom, and he's standing there on the precipice. And all he has to do is drop the ring in and destroy this. And at the last moment, he says No. Do you remember this in the movie? Eventually it's Gollum who, who just tossed in with the ring, but Frodo decides no, and Sam, his friend, screams, no! And that's what we should feel in this text at this moment. They've come up on the edge of the land, which God has been promising them. They're standing right on the edge of it, and they say, ah, maybe not. Maybe it's just too hard. One of the things that we learn first in the story about disbelief is that disbelief is always possible. Disbelief is always possible. Disbelief can happen in the most miraculous of circumstances. I mean, Israel has been seeing God do incredible things on their behalf. From the moment that he started leading them out of Egypt to providing them with manna in the wilderness, God has done amazing things for them. And and he's promised to give them the land. I mean, if you look in verse 13, he says, send them into the land which I am giving to the people. The promise, I'm going to give you this land. I'm promising you I'll give you this land. It's not up to you to earn it. I'm, I'm giving it to you. But you see, it doesn't matter what you've seen or what you know or what you thought you believed. Disbelief is always waiting just around the corner. It can sneak up on us when we're afraid, like Israel was, when we see the people in the land and they seem too strong for us. It can crop up when you have to get rid of this dog and you have no idea how you're going to do it. It can crop up when the bills at the end of the month are more than the amount in the checking account at the end of the month. When health questions begin to loom large, but disbelief can also happen when we don't like what God says. Wh- when his word contradicts how we want to live or, 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 or our desires. When his design for flourishing bumps up against our desire to do it our own way. In these moments when we say to God, these are the moments when we begin to say to him, you know, well, what does God actually really know about my marriage? What, is he, what does he really know about my kids or about my finances? I'm going to do this the way... I'm going to do it. But you see, God is always miraculously working in our lives. He's always at work in our lives. He's always providentially active, providing for us. But do we see it? Or is disbelief truly just around the corner for us? So the spies went in, and they saw that the land was good. They didn't doubt. At first, I mean, they saw that the land was full of good things. Grapes so huge it took two men to carry them back. But somehow, when they arrive back with the people, there are now two very different perspectives that emerge. If you look at verse 30 in chapter 13, you see what Caleb says. Caleb says he quieted the people before Moses and he says, let us go up at once and occupy the land for we are able to overcome it. I love Caleb because we're going to see him in the book of Joshua later on in the story. He is eager to even take the most difficult parts of the land. He says we can do this. God has promised us this land. What are we waiting for? Let's get after this. However, the other 10 spies, the other 10 spies, just like the serpent in the Garden of Eden, begin to make God's promise seem less good and more difficult than it truly is. They say, yeah, the land is good, but it's a land that really devours its people. The obstacles are too great. This isn't worth it. It's not worth the risk. Two people, two sets of people, witness the exact same things, but from very different perspectives. One's through the lens of belief and trust, the other through the lens of disbelief. You see, faith is the presence of trust, not the absence of fear and doubt. And I want to say that again. Faith is the presence of trust. It's not the absence of fear and doubt. There's lots of times when we're confronted with very difficult circumstances where fear and doubt and wondering are going to be a part of what's happening in our lives. But that is not contradictory to faith you see, the difficulties the spies encounter are real. There are lots of inhabitants. The land is going to be difficult to conquer. And Caleb doesn't deny this. But he sees what God is capable of, not what he is capable of. Caleb doesn't contradict the content of the scouts' reports, but only their conclusions. And actually, the spies begin to change the facts to match their disbelief. They start saying the land is bad. They start saying this is actually not that good of a land after all. Really, Egypt is quite a bit better. And do you see it right here? It's something that we often don't want to admit. But it's so clear in the story that disbelief is a choice. And this is the second thing we learn in this story, that disbelief is a choice. Disbelief is not a lack of facts, but a lack of faith. I love how J- Pastor John Orperk uh, out in California, he puts it. He says, disbelief is very different from uncertainty. He says, uncertainty is a matter of intellect, but disbelief is a settled decision of the will. Disbelief is a settled decision of the will you see faith and doubt are not uh, mutually exclusive but faith and unbelief are we can have deep faith in God and still have questions and still doubt and still wrestle but faith and disbelief cannot exist together you see doubt is asking questions about uncertainties from the standpoint of faith but unbelief is deciding not to have faith in God See, Caleb here embodies what uh, Jim Collins in his book, The Good to Great, what he calls the Stockdale Paradox. This idea that you don't deny the difficult reality that's in front of you. You have to face the brutal facts, but you at the same time also maintain a hope that you will be victorious in the end. You see, faith and belief isn't a naive optimism. Rather, faith faces the brutal facts and then trusts that God will do what he has promised to do. So what about us? Here, disbelief is prompted by fear, but it can come from many places. From bitterness or anger, from loss or pain, when we feel like God has let us down, when he, when he hasn't come through, when he, it seems like he hasn't done what he said he's going to. And then before you know it, your whole world revolves around proving that what you think about God is true. What does he really know, anyway, about my life? What does he really know about my marriage? What does he really know about my money, or my health, or about sexual ethics? Or you say you never really believed any of this stuff. But could it believe that you never even really wanted to? I mean, if God exists, if Jesus is true, that means that you have to reckon with him. And could it be the reason that you choose not to believe is that you don't want to have to wrestle with who Jesus really is if he is who he says he is? You see, redemption often involves great struggle and requires great faith. It's rarely easy, it's rarely comfortable, it's rarely safe. And this is what Israel's facing. They've left Egypt where it was actually really comfortable, and they say, wait, wait, God, redemption wasn't supposed to look like this. This is a lot harder, this is a lot more difficult, this is a lot less comfortable than what we had in some ways back in Egypt. So do we want God? Do we really want what he has promised for us? The people of Israel decide they would rather have easy, safe, and comfortable. Never mind that those things meant slavery as well. Look at what they say in chapter 14, verses 1 uh, through 4. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses remember that word grumbling coming in here grumbled against Moses and Aaron the whole congregation said to them would that we have died in the land of Egypt or would that we have died in the wilderness why is the lord bringing us into this land to fall by the swords our wives and our little ones to become a prey would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt and they said to one another let us choose a new leader and go back to Egypt you see, the people choose to disbelieve. They choose to believe the bad part, and they start grumbling again. And Once again, their faulty memories of how good it was back in Egypt start to get the better of them, and their sort of false expectations about what redemption would really look like are smashing into the reality of what it actually is looking like. And basically, they say, we would be better off dead. We would be better as slaves than Egypt than taking hold of what God has for us. And soon their reminiscing returns into rebellion. They don't want the promised land. They don't want Moses and Aaron. And they don't want God. But if they're going to refuse to believe God, it's not just that they stop believing in anything. You see, that's not possible. It's just they choose to believe in something else. You see, when they stop trusting God, when they stop believing in him, it's not as though they now believe in nothing. It's just they believe in something else. They say, if, if God can't save us, we can save ourselves. We can pick a new leader, someone else to rescue us, someone else to lead us. Our salvation is back in Egypt. You see, no one ever stops believing. We just end up believing in something else. And that's the third thing that we see in this story. That disbelief in one thing always equals belief in something else. Disbelief in one thing always equals disbelief or belief in something else. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, the great author uh, and thinker over the turn of the last century, observed that if people cease to, cease to believe in God, they do not cease to believe in nothing but in anything. In fact, many thinkers, and and not all of them are even theists or followers of God, for example, Thomas Nagel out of NYU, recognize that it requires as much faith to disbelieve God as it does to believe in him. Now, most of us this morning are probably not thoroughgoing philosophical atheists, but how many of us function on a day-to-day basis as practical atheists, trusting ourselves Trusting those around us, trusting our job, whatever it might be, to truly to save us, to truly provide for us. This happens when we subtly shift our trust from belief in God to to our doctors, to our bank account. That's what I struggle with. Man, I'm always watching, Rachel will tell you, I'm always watching how much is in that checking account and how much are we saving. When we shift our belief in God to trusting the acceptance of that boy or girl in your class, to that good grade on your next exam. You see, everyone is a believer. Everyone trusts in something. So the question isn't really, do you believe? But rather, what is it that you believe in? Well, Moses and Aaron and Caleb and Joshua see the people's response. They, they lose it. They, they can't understand that why this people respond in this way, and they fall on their faces. Moses and Aaron, they tear their clothes, and, and, and they plead with the people not to rebel against the Lord. You see this in verses 5 through 9. They, they plead, don't, this is exceedingly good land. Don't, don't reject this. Not now, not after we've waited so long. But what is the people's response? You see it in verse 10. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. So so basically God intervenes and keeps them from killing Moses and Aaron right in that moment. And, and I mean there's a reason we, don't, we, we have this phrase, don't shoot the messenger, right? Because people often do. And, uh, and Joshua and Caleb speak correctly, but they're almost killed for it. I mean, disbelief refuses to be wrong. Disbelief would rather kill or die than be wrong. And that's the worst part of any argument, right? Whenever you're in an argument, the worst part of it is when you know that you're wrong and yet you feel like you can't stop arguing. I had a moment like that with with uh, Rachel the other night. It was something so dumb in the kitchen about when, when to start a certain item that we were going to be serving. Do we need to start it now or wait 15 minutes? And, and of course she was right. She's the one who knows about the cooking and stuff. But we got in this argument about it, and I knew I was wrong, but I kept fighting anyway. <laughs> and it's the worst place to be because you just feel like, I can't give up on this. But you see, disbelief would rather die. It would rather... Be killed, then admit that it's wrong. It's the worst part. It's the worst place to be. When we disbelieve, we refuse to listen to others. And the thing is, we'll drag anyone down with us. You know, our refusal to to believe, whatever the case may be, it affects all of us. It started out with 10 spies here, but then it spread to a whole nation. And when God sees how this disbelief and rebellion spread through the people, this is how he responds in verse 11. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? (laughs) Israel doesn't say as much, but all their actions here are summarized by God this way. They hate me. They despise me. This people hates me. This word despise, it means hate or revulsion, kind of from your gut, this gut level just hatred. Eugene Peterson in the message puts it this way He says, How long will this people treat me like dirt? How long will this people treat me like dirt? And God is right. The people do treat him like dirt. In short, they say any leader, any country, any path is better than what you have for us, God. You see, at the end of the day, unbelief is rebellion. These people are on the doorstep of heaven. But when they get a glimpse of it, they say, you know what, we'd prefer hell. And C.S. Lewis writes in The Great Divorce, which is a book that describes this very sort of situation, these people getting a glimpse of heaven but deciding that they prefer hell. He says in this book, and this is so poignant, he says there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, your will be done. And he says all that are in hell, choose it. And in many ways, this is exactly what Israel gets. A whole generation dies in the wilderness. God gives them exactly what they ask for. Verses 23 through 35 describe the result of this people's rejection of God here at Kadesh. None of them who saw the signs in Egypt, none of them who listed in the census uh, 20 years or older will get to enter the land. Rather, they will spend a year for every day that the spies were in the land wandering. The spies were in the day spying it out for 40 years or for 40 days and now they will spend 40 years in the desert. You see, if God is the last thing that you want, he is the last thing that you'll get. If God's the last thing that you want, he's the last thing you'll get. Lewis writes elsewhere, once a man is united to God, how can he not live forever? And once a man is separated from God, what can he do but wither and die? It's heartbreaking, but big or small, this is what disbelief does. Disbelief chooses death over life. And God gives us what we ask for. If He is the last thing we want, he is the last thing we will get. You see, lack of faith shuts us off from the good things that God wants for us. It actually diminishes the good that God has for us. What is the promised land that God is calling you and me into? What is the promised land that he's offering to us right now? I mean, God's promised land for you is being formed in the image of Christ. It's becoming like Jesus. I mean, that's the great hope when you read the New Testament, that the people who follow Jesus, that the great hope is that we would become like him, that we would become little Christ. This is the promised land that he's held out for us. But so often we get glimpses of this life, of what it would look like to live this life full of peace and joy and love and patience and goodness and self-control and the beauty of a life of that. And then what we realize what, what it takes to actually go there, We see, you know what, I'd rather just stay where I am. I'd rather just stay where I am. Disbelief chooses life over death. In the most extreme example here, the ten spies who brought the bad report, they actually die immediately of a plague. And as shocking as this is, the real question is not why did these 10 guys die like that on the spot, but why didn't God just wipe out the whole people in this moment? Why? Why didn't God judge all these people and just wipe them out completely? Well, it certainly isn't because he didn't think about it or because they didn't deserve it. Um, If you look at verse 12 in chapter 14, this is what God says to Moses. He says, I will strike them. This is not just those 10, but the whole nation. I will strike them with a pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make a new nation out of you, a greater and mightier than they are you. He says, Moses, you know what? Wiping them all out, I'm starting over with you. But God in his great mercy and love does not carry out this plan. Moses pleads with God's people uh, on, God's, on, on God's behalf for these people just as he did when they did the same kind of thing with the golden calf. If you've been reading the story back in Exodus, the similar kind of incident happens and God pleads for the people. Moses gets between God and this people and he says, for the sake of your name, for the sake of who you are, God, don't do this. Show this people who you are. He doesn't say to God, no, this is wrong. You shouldn't judge these people. Moses knows that they should be judged. He doesn't say, well, you know, we can still turn this around. God, just give us a little bit more time. I I can kind of bring this people around. I can talk them into it. He knows that they're beyond that at this point. Rather, he restates who God is. He recalls God's promise. You see this in, in verse 19 of chapter 14. He says, please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you've forgiven this people from Egypt until now. You see, it is only ever God's steadfast love, his hesed love, that is able to defeat unbelief. It is only God's steadfast love that is able to defeat unbelief. See, thousands of years later, God's rescuing, intervening, disbelief-defeating love would be made manifest in the sending of his son, Jesus, his only son. Jesus says in John chapter 3, he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that it might be saved through him. And then listen to what Jesus says here. I think this is so powerful in light of the story. He says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe, whoever disbelieves is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. You see, when we begin to apprehend God's incredible love for us, disbelief begins to melt away. But when we fail to apprehend God's love, we continue in our disbelief to our condemnation. In light of Jesus, the only thing that condemn us, because Jesus has come and he's died on the cross and he's risen from the dead, in light of all of that, the only thing that can condemn us is disbelief in him. A refusal to believe in him, to trust in him as our intercessor, our mediator, our rescuer. You see, Jesus is the new and better mediator who intercedes on our behalf Paul in the book of Romans says that while we were yet sinners, while we were still in total disbelief, Jesus proved his steadfast love. He died for us. And just as the people picked up stones to stone Moses, later on in John chapter 8, people pick up stones and try to stone Jesus. Isaiah the prophet points out that the Messiah, the suffering servant, would be despised just as the people despise God, that he would be rejected. Jesus was despised and rejected. He bore our transgressions and made intercession for us to rescue us from unbelief. Jesus is the one who defeats our true enemies, who brings us into a better land. He is the source of God's goodness and forgiveness and pardon. He is the one who casts out fear. He is the one whose yoke is easy and light, who makes Christ-likeness possible as we learn from him. He is the one whose love is able to melt our disbelief and ignite true life in us. So with that in mind, come to the Lord's table this morning and take Christ's body which is broken for you. And take the cup, which represents his blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. He has rescued you. You don't have to be a member of Christ's community to participate in communion. All followers of Jesus who have placed their trust in him, who, who look to Christ as their only hopes, are welcome at his table. Um, And of course, if you would rather, if you're not yet sure where you're at with Christ, I don't know if I I trust, um, I would invite you to use this time to really think about that question, do I want to believe? Do I even want this? And when you come, I would encourage you to gather in groups of four or five or six around the table and, and take the bread and dip it in the cup and then partake together. Uh, There's two communion stations that are here in the front and then two in the back. This one in the back has gluten-free communion elements available for you if you need that. And when you go to receive communion, uh, it works best if you kind of exit through the side aisles and then return back through the center aisle. So come now to the Lord's table to see and taste and touch the goodness, the reality of disbelief defeating love. Come when you're ready.